Our scripture for today is Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, good morning to you all. We come to the Ten Commandments. If you, if you know almost nothing about the Bible, almost assuredly uh, you have heard about the Ten Commandments. You can find a lot of things online about the Ten Commandments, as you can imagine. You can, you can read about various debates about, you know, where should you display the Ten Commandments in, in front of a court or in the schools. You can also find lots of parodies, which is where I spent my research time this week. You can, um, you can find the Hillbilly Ten Commandments, which ain't nothing coming before the Lord. Uh, you've got the Ten Commandments of Cats, you sh Thou Shall Not Have Any Other Pet Before Me. You've got uh, the cartoon of, of, um, of, of Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's got the Ten Commandments, except they're in like a Kindle format, which is way lighter than the, the stone tablets, and you can scroll down. Uh, my personal favorite was the, uh, is Moses coming down another cartoon, and he's got the tablets, and, and one of the Israelites says, so does this mean that what happens in Vegas never should have even happened in the first place? It's my favorite one. What do we do with these Ten Commandments? We could fight about them. We could make memes about them. Uh, I think one of the questions that we probably ask ourselves is, do we even need to follow these as Christians? Um, and then what about all the other commandments that follow in the 600 and the, in the Torah? Like, like, which ones do we follow? Just the Ten? Okay, how's that Sabbath command going for you? Lots of questions about these commands. I'm not going to get to them all today, but, but what I think we have something really helpful going for us, we have context. You and I, uh, if you've been here with us the last few months, we have literally spent months uh, on the backstory to these commandments. So oftentimes when you preach on the Ten Commandments, you tend to do it often in isolation. You'll, you'll just kind of dive right in and you'll pull out a command or all the commands and you preach on them. And you, you, It's hard to see them within the context of of the Exodus. But the, you know, the, the Israelites, they didn't wake up one day and go outside and from heaven had fallen uh, this tablet with the commandments on it. And they didn't say, you know, I don't know where these came from, but we better follow them. We get, um, we have a story behind it, and I want, we see glimpses of that story in the preamble. Can you put up the first slide, Ron? This is what we, we read before we read any of the commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So we got two really important things in this preamble. We've got a name, and we get a story. So um, who is giving these commands to the Israelites? It is the Lord in all caps, as you see there. So a little test for you. What's behind that Lord in all caps? Anybody? Yahweh, excellent. There's a name behind that. It's not like a generic Lord. We, get, we went over that when we were first at Mount Sinai. There's a personal name behind there. God has a name. Okay, these, these uh, commands that are coming are not going to be coming from some kind of impersonal deity. They're going to come from a relational being. And, and when Moses was here, same mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, all, those, all that time ago, he was told the, the I am, to tell the Israelites the I am has sent you. What in the world does I am mean? Like, it's very vague, right? What, what is behind I am? But now, between that first revelation of God's name and now, we've, we've learned a lot about who uh, the I am is. So who is Yahweh? Yahweh is powerful. 
Okay, in this battle that we saw against Pharaoh uh, and against the Egyptian empire, Yahweh has crushed them. As we read, there's no one like the Lord. Okay, Yahweh has creation itself at his disposal. Yahweh is compassionate. Yahweh looks down at his people. He sees them in slavery. He, he feels for them. He has compassion. He hears the groaning, okay? Yahweh is a savior, okay? Not only is Yahweh sympathetic with the Israelites, he, he goes in and, in dramatic fashion and rescues the Israelites. Yahweh is a liberator. Yahweh is a provider. Yahweh doesn't just get them free and let them go. He, he, he provides for them in the wilderness. They, they're given manna. They're given water. They're given quail. So I want you to see these commandments are not just coming out of nowhere. Right? They're not coming from a random deity. They are emerging from a relationship in which God has unequivocally shown that he is for these people. Let me give you, let me give you an example here. There are certain commandments at my house that I would love to give my children. Okay? Some of them would be for my own benefit. Like, thou shall not create chaos in my house. Thou shall cease to ask questions after 9 p.m., Hopefully, though, most of these commandments are for their benefit. So, right, I could, I could write up all these commandments. Like, part of me would like to do that. I, um, I would write up all these commandments and, and, then, and then give them to them. But the, the older I get, hopefully a little bit wiser as a parent, the more I realize that if I don't do the work to establish a strong relationship with my kids, if, if I don't make sure that through my words and actions that they trust that I am for them, like these commandments, they're not going to mean anything to them. Right? They're not going to emerge from a loving relationship. They're just going to seem like these kind of arbitrary rules that, that I'm giving to my kids. And so they can follow them, and then one day they're hopefully going to be free of those rules, and they, you know, good riddance. The Israelites, they used to belong to one master. They used to belong to Pharaoh. Okay, now they belong to another. They belong to Yahweh. And these two masters could not be more different. Pharaoh was a tyrant. He couldn't be trusted. He didn't have their best interests in mind. He gave them commandments, but those commandments were for their, his own benefit. Um, so Pharaoh relates to the Israelites like a master would relate to his slave. Yahweh is the complete opposite of that. Yahweh is unequivocally for these people. Yahweh is in relationship with these people. And he's more, it's, it's more like not a slave master, but a parent child. Yahweh can be trusted. And that's why the Israelites can trust or should be able to trust these commandments. are not just, again, random rules falling from the sky from some unknown God, but these commandments are for their benefit, okay? Grace becomes, comes before law. God graciously and freely rescues the Israelites and then gives them the law. But not only do these commandments come after uh, grace, they're actually, and this is maybe a little bit harder for us to get our minds around, they are a means of grace. And they're a gift. And that's, I think, I think in our society that can seem a little strange, like we're not all of us, but we're fairly anti-authoritarian society. We, uh, as a society, don't love uh, people telling us what to do. Like, so the rules, commandments, like not typically good connotations in our mind. Uh, I was in Jerusalem a couple weeks ago, and, and there's a, a Jewish holiday uh, that was being happened to be there when I was there. Uh, thousands, maybe 50,000, 60,000 people in the Western Wall Plaza, all there to celebrate the giving of the Torah. Imagine that. In our country, 60,000 people, you know, not that big of a country, gathering together to celebrate the giving of law. We don't typically do that. You know what we do? We celebrate freedom, right? July 4th. That's our big holiday. We're going to blow up stuff. 
and, and have a bunch of like good barbecue because we're going to celebrate freedom. Like I don't see a lot of like huge like gatherings that we're going to celebrate the giving of laws. But commandments are gifts. Let me give you one example. Anyone else? Any? And I know I'm not the only one, so I'm going to assume there's other one. You don't have to raise your hand. Anyone else, when you're not doing something productive, something of practical value, feel like you're doing something wrong? Feel like you're wasting time? Okay? At that, if you're like that, and that's me, one of the best gifts you can be given is someone, you know, maybe your wife, to tell you, not only to tell you, but to command you to stop, to cease from your productivity. Okay? That's a command, and it's a gift. That's the Sabbath command, right? We're going to get to that. The Israelites, all they know for generations and generations and generations, all they know is working without rest. And they are going to not just have to be advised to stop resting, um, stop working. They're going to have to be commanded to cease. And so God has given them a command. That command is a gift, okay? You're going to take one day a week, and you're going to do no work. Because God wants the Israelites to flourish. He has their best interest in mind. He's seen that through his actions, and now we can see that and through the instructions that he's going to give them, not for his own sake, like, and not even for their own sake, but as we talked about last week, God wants to use these people for his purposes. They're going to be a kingdom of priests, a light and blessing to the world around them. There's this church I, I seem to always drive by in southeastern Pennsylvania, and I'm driving by, and I always come to the Ten Commandments out in front. And I'm always like, that's, that's kind of odd, right? I think it might even be a brethren church. Not to pick on this church, but I'm always a little confused when I see the 10 minutes. Because I'm like, what is the purpose of that? So, like, hear me out. The Ten Commandments matter. I don't really know if it's always entirely clear how we as uh, Christians are to relate to them or to the law as a whole. But there, I think we can all agree there's a huge amount of wisdom and value in these commandments. Um, so if the display in southeast Pennsylvania, this church, is to remind God's people these commandments... I can, I can basically get on board with that. It's not what I would probably choose to put in front of our church, but I can get on board with that. But what happens to all these people driving by that are not part of the family of God? They don't even believe in God. Like, should they be following these commandments? Do these commandments matter to them? Do I think that um, our society would function better if there was no more murder and no more stealing and no more giving false testimony and everyone stopped uh, for one day a week, to rest? Absolutely. Am I glad that there's laws in our society that, that address many of these things, even if people don't believe in God? Absolutely. But I, but, I, but I point that out because I think it's easy for us to miss the point of these commandments. Uh, we can kind of accidentally communicate to people that, that being Christian, in our case, uh, being right with God is primarily a matter of proper conduct. Is primarily, maybe if we put it crassly, is primarily just following rules as opposed to being a relationship with God. Okay, God, look, I want you to notice, God, who is God giving these commandments to? He's not giving it to the Assyrians. He's not giving it to the Egyptians. He's not giving it to the Canaanites. These commands are for a very specific people, the Israelites. Okay, these specific commands are for a specific people. And, and um, these commandments only make sense in the context of a bigger story of what God has done for the Israelites. God has saved them, redeemed them, provided for them, He's made them his people, and now, after all that, he's going to give them these instructions. As one person in commentary put it, God doesn't give the commandments to make the Israelites nice people, okay? 
God doesn't give the commandments to make them nice people. God gives them the commandments so they can flourish one and so that they can be agents of change. They can be image bearers of God. They can be a blessing to the nations around them. Uh, it's, not that, it's not that it's bad for people who don't know God to follow God's commandments. It's good, but it's not enough. Okay? We need to make sure that instructions are part of a story. Let me, give you, let me give an example that I touched a little bit on last week. I said one of the things that makes us distinctive as followers of Jesus is that we are commanded by Jesus to love our enemies. Okay? You might be a totally different uh, disposition and personality than me, but if you come up to me and I know nothing about Jesus and you tell me that I'm commanded to love my enemy, to pray for them, to do good for them, here's my response. Why in the world would I do that? Why would I do that? That goes against every instinct in my body, okay? My instinct when somebody hurts me or someone I love is to hit them. That's what I want to do. And so probably more of you out there that would admit you want to do the same thing, right? That is not right. Thank you for that. At least one head nod. I want to harm them. I want revenge. The command to love my enemy outside of Jesus makes zero sense to me. Unless you give me that command in the context of a story. Okay? Unless you tell me a story about that, that places me and tells me that at one time I was actually an enemy of God. And that God came to me and gave me not what I deserved, but gave his life for me. Unless you tell me a story which I begin to see, man, I am pretty broken myself. I am pretty sinful myself. And so it's not just my enemy that's committing sin. The sin is in me too. A story in which, and this is so beautiful, we, we never should get tired. The creator of the world is going to come down to creation, okay, is going to be crucified on a cross, and as the creator of the world is being crucified on the cross, the creator will forgive his creatures. You are not going to get me to love my enemy by telling me to love my enemy. You want me to get me to do the hard, seemingly impossible task of loving my enemy? Don't give me a command. Tell me a story. Tell me a story that leaves me humbled, that leaves me in awe of Jesus, what he's done for me, the example he's set for me, and how he wants to use me as light and salt in the world. Tell me a story about how Jesus, even though it's hard to understand, has my best interest in mind. Okay? God doesn't give you and I, because we're going to get to this when we get to the instructions of the New Testament. For us, God doesn't give us these instructions to, to make us nice, ethical people. Okay? If we separate our ethics, meaning our moral behavior, from the story of Jesus, we're going to do a couple things. One, we're going to give impression to people who are not followers of Jesus that being a follower of Jesus is primarily about like following rules. That's a challenge. That's not really the most attractive kind of witness to the world. The other challenge we come to is if we separate our ethics, our moral behavior from our faith, we begin to think, and this is what I, just to be honest, I see more of a challenge in our own stream of faith. We begin to think as long as you're a nice, ethical person, who does the right thing and supports the right causes, you're fine. Okay, Being nice and ethical is kind of the goal, right? Here's the problem. Honestly, it's not, it's not that hard to be nice. Not in the world's understanding of nice. You could be a nice, ethical person to be very far from God. Okay, well, Here's what's distinctive about us as far as Jesus. Not that we're nice and ethical, though we, I hope we are nice and ethical, it's self-sacrificial love modeled by the example of Jesus. 
right? It's, it's, it's willing the good of another over myself. I never want to do that. I want to be nice because I want people to be nice to me and I want people to like me. To will their good over my own good, I do not naturally want to do that. That's hard. Okay, and you're not going to get me to do that by giving me a bunch of rules. You're going to get me to do that by telling me a story that captures my heart. Uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, okay? Jesus doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me. If you love me, if your heart has been captured by me, you're going to want to keep my commandments. It's not the way it works, right? If, our, if we, we love our spouses and we love our children, we don't have to typically be told, hey, you need to, you need a command to love your child. You need a command to take care of them and make sure they've got food and, and make sure whatever. I love my kids. You love your kids. You love your siblings or your family or your spouse, and therefore it flows out of that love. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus also doesn't say, hey, if you love me, you can do whatever you want. Okay, this is, this is, a, this is like a hard, maybe a little bit jarring, but make no mistake, following Jesus is a massive inconvenience. Following Jesus is a massive disruption to your life. When you sign up to follow Jesus, all kinds of commands and instructions, most of them that are wildly inconvenient and counterintuitive, come at you. When you start to follow Jesus, not only does he have instructions for you about how you're to love your enemy, he has instructions for you on how to do with your money, what to do with your anger, what to do with your time, what to do with your body. Many of them which are hugely inconvenient and counterintuitive and for our benefit. See, that's the difference here. I trust that Jesus has a better sense of what's good for me than I do myself, my own intuitions. And as I lean into that, as I lean into the commands of Jesus, I'm going to see more and more Jesus is for me. These instructions aren't these arbitrary commands coming down from heaven. They are from a God who has unequivocally shown me that he is for me through Jesus Christ and that he wants what is best for me. Okay, we've got to give the backstory. We can't be a congregation that just gives rules. Those commandments matter. Don't hear me out. We've got to show people Jesus, allow Jesus to capture their hearts, and then let that other stuff flow out of there. That's what we see, right? That's what we see with the Exodus. God does not give these commandments until he has shown them, he's for them, he has rescued them, he has redeemed them. So with that, let's, let's go to the first commandment, and don't worry, we're just going to do one today, okay? Don't stress. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, Israel has spent literally hundreds of years in Egypt in this culture where there's all kinds of gods, okay? And now they find themselves... This strange people who are told you only are supposed to have one God. Like, this is completely different than all of their other neighbors. And more literally, what the command says is, 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 there shall not be more, I'm sorry, there shall not be for you other gods before my face. So in other words, God's like, get, get all those gods out of here. Get them out of my face. You, are, you have nothing to do with these gods. Which we kind of take, I think, for granted. It's what it sounded really, really strange to the Israelites. No other nation, no other people around them do this. Everybody else believes in, in multiple gods. Um, now the Israelites are told you're only to, to, to have one god. Um, see, the way it worked in the ancient Near, Near East is that the, the world was really chaotic. Uh, there was these various gods. There was gods of wind and rain and sun and earth. 
And sometimes these gods were at battle with each other, and sometimes these gods were at peace with each other. Uh, sometimes these gods were on your side, and sometimes they were against you. So you had to do what you can to, to harness the power of those gods for you. I mean, this is an unpredictable world. You, you want those gods and in, in working for your favor. And so, we, um, and so it was just kind of taken for granted that you would, you, you know, for example, make sacrifices to multiple gods. To get, well, why not, right? So, so this sounds really radical. As the, and this is going to be really hard for the Israelites to do. They're going to struggle with this the rest of the time, basically the rest of the Old Testament. It's going to be really hard for them to just uh, follow one god. They're going to constantly fall into temptation of worshiping other gods. And, it, and here's what I, I want to point out to you. It's not because they stopped believing in Yahweh. Okay, this is important. I think sometimes we in our culture, we think, well, the two choices are you either believe in God or you don't believe in God. But that's not what God is telling them. God, and if you live, if you, most of the world you travel around, that's not really a question. It's a question of which God. Which God will you worship? So, so, so God is saying, you, you, God is not saying you, don't, you need to believe in me. God is saying we're going to have an exclusive relationship. Okay, the temptation is, is less that you're going to stop worshiping. It's more that you're going to want to have an open relationship. Okay? You're going to want to worship me, and you're going to want to worship other gods. And that's not going to work. So let's think about why would the Israelites be tempted to worship other gods? I think, in part, it's because they want to hedge their bets. So most of us are anymore, aren't farmers anymore. Um, and so our livelihood isn't dependent on rain or early frost or things like that. It looks to me like when I go to the grocery store, it looks like an endless supply of food. Like, what could possibly stop me from eating? Um, but imagine you're a farmer in the ancient Near East, and your livelihood depends on rain. Like, it doesn't rain, you're, you're done. Okay, you can put your trust in Yahweh to provide for you, but why not hedge your bets? Why not, like, also make a sacrifice to the God of rain? Okay, you're trying to get a crop out of here. You can, multi, you can sacrifice to Yahweh, and you can sacrifice to this other God. And if that one works, great. If Yahweh works, great. And Yahweh comes along and is like, nope, that's not going to work. I'm it. I'm all you're going to have. You're an exclusive relationship with me, which means I'm the sole object of your worship and your trust. So, so why, okay, so they're put in a hard position. Why are the Israelites going to take this plunge? Why are they going to put all their eggs in baskets, in one basket? Um, in a world where everyone else has the option to, to, you know, sacrifice to multiple gods, this seems crazy. Why would they do it? Well, again, we've immersed ourselves in the story of the Exodus long enough that we should understand this a bit better. God gives them this command, you shall have no other gods before me, only after God has demonstrated his power to them. Okay, whatever spiritual powers are out there, and the Bible accounts for lots of spiritual powers, they are nothing compared to Yahweh. Okay, no, you've seen no other God is worthy of worship. So we saw this back in Egypt because Pharaoh's got access to supernatural powers. It's through his magicians, right? If we saw the first few plagues, um, Aaron, Aaron throws down a staff, turns into a snake. Magicians can do that. Uh, Moses and Aaron turn water to blood. Magi Egypt magicians can do that. Same thing with frogs. Yeah, right, Yahweh's not the only being in this story with power. But it isn't long before in our story that the magicians can't keep up. They realize they are totally overmatched. Like, they are a joke compared to Yahweh. Let me give you, see if I can illustrate this. Um, this would be like if, say, I invited you to a shoot-around at a basketball gym, and you get to see Stephen Curry shoot. You get to see Stephen Curry's abilities, his talents, 
and then you get to watch me, okay? If you're not a basketball fan, this is a pretty big difference here. And then you're told, all right, you're going you're to get to choose one of these people to be on your team. Who do you want? Okay, right, you've witnessed the shoot-around. You would not say, um, you know, I think it makes sense to choose Stephen Curry, but, man, maybe we should keep Matthew around. <laughs> right? Just in case Stephen Curry is really not all that he's, you know, you know he won a lot of master championships, but maybe we should keep Matthew around. Like, that's kind of the equivalent. They've seen there is no match. There's Yahweh, and there's these other powers, and it is so not a fair match. This is ridiculous in many ways to hold on to these other gods. God is, so I want you to see that God's not this like insecure God like jumping up and down the playground saying, pick me, pick me. Like, I'm better than these gods. God's like, you know who I am. Okay? I've shown you. I've split water. I've done all these plagues. You've seen the evidence. You've seen that my power is unmatched. These other gods... Why are you wasting your time with them? I've given you the evidence. You just got to believe it. Can you put up that next slide? This is a quote from uh, Gospel in a Pluralistic Society by Lizzie Newbegin. I really like this quote. We have been given everything and forgiven everything and promised everything so that, as Luther said, we lack nothing except faith to believe it. When you, look, when you and I, as, as followers of Jesus, look back at the story of Jesus, we see immense power. We see the power in Jesus' miracles. We see the power in the, his resurrection from the dead. We see a relationship he's established with us. We see uh, just a love for us that we can't even comprehend. We see the gift of forgiveness. Right? We get a promise from Jesus of what he's going to do one day. We see, when we look at Jesus, if you and I step back, like the Israelites look at what God has done for them, when we step back and look at what Jesus has done for us, we have everything we need. Our identity is secure in Christ. Our future is secure in Christ. You and I lack nothing. And yet, despite all that, how hard is that for for us to really believe? How hard is it for, for us to put our trust in that, to lean against, to put our weight against those promises? I think we're much more like the Israelites than we'd like to admit. I don't, think we, I don't think most of us here want to stop worshiping God. I don't think most of us here want to stop trusting Jesus. We're just uncomfortable putting all our eggs in one basket. That seems crazy. That seems really like, radical. Like, we're not tempted to come uh, here to worship on Sunday, and we offer our, our praise and worship to God, and then on Monday I'm going to catch like you guys out on the high place making sacrifices to the God of wind and sun of rain. Like, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not worried about that as a pastor. What about the example of the God of mammon, though, the God of money? Okay, we may not sacrifice uh, an animal to the God of mammon, but, but how much time and energy and attention do we offer at the altar of the almighty dollar? Why do we do it? Because we trust that that's going to help give us what we need, right? We, we know if we've read, uh, especially the Sermon on the Mount, we've been instructed by God, he's going to care for us. We're still nervous. We still want to hedge our bets. Like, we've heard a story about Jesus assuring us, like, he takes care of the birds, he's going to take care of me, like, the flowers are really look nice, and I'm going to look nice, but man, I want to hedge my bets. And what happens when you begin to hedge your bets is your, your allegiance becomes divided. Okay, God has made it crystal clear to the Israelites, that's not going to work. You cannot have two gods. Jesus says something very similar. He says, you can't have two masters. It's not going to work. 
not worshiping, not putting our trust on the gods, not putting other little gods before God, it isn't just a challenge for the Israelites, it's our challenge. Let me get, I'll make it more personal. Let me give, I can flesh this out a bit. Um, I read in the New Testament that the greatest commandment for me as a follower of Jesus is I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. Okay, That's your greatest commandment too. I am to put the relationship with God above all else. Uh, and there's lots of ways I live out that command. It's words and actions in my life. Uh, but, but one of the primary ways I'm going to live that out is to be in relationship with God, to spend time with God. Like I can't tell, uh, for example, my, my wife and children, like, hey, can we do like an hour and 15 minutes together a week? Um, is that good for our relationship? <laughs> That's kind of what we do. Like, all right, God, I'll give you, I'll give you an hour on Sunday. Um, can we, does that work for our relationship? Would that work with anybody's relationship? It's just not going to work. Like, you're just not going to be able to have a relationship with somebody that you give, what, 0.2% of your week to? It's just not going to work. Same with God, okay? Like, if, you want to, if we want a relationship with God, we're going to have to give time to God. So, so we're going to have to nurture that relationship, right? There's lots of different ways we do that. We spend time with God. We communicate with God. We listen to God. That's how we do it. And, and this looks different for different people. I'm not saying the way you connect with God needs to be exactly like mine, but if I don't, first thing in the morning, wake up, spend time in Scripture, spend time meditating on God, it's very unlikely that anything is going to happen that day. But here's what happens to me sometimes. I wake up, and I'm tempted to do something else, right? Instead of spending that time with God, I'm tempted uh, to head straight to work. That's not a bad thing, is it? I'm not interested in going out and gambling or whatever. I could get in trouble watching TV. I want to go to work, Okay. Okay, well, let me, let me like peel that back a little bit. Why am, I, why am I so eager to get to work, get to my vocation as a pastor? Well, if I get to work, I can start working on my sermon, okay? Okay, good thing, hopefully. Especially if my motivation is, is primarily to help you understand the Word of God, if I can be a minister of the Word to you, right? What if I want to impress you? What if, what if the motivation is I want to look competent? I don't want to stand up there on Sunday morning and look incompetent. Uncompetent? I don't want to lack competence. That's not, that's not, okay. So what's happening here? What's, what's really happening here? I'm putting the God of approval, the God of affirmation, over the God of the universe. Right? I'm, 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 I'm trusting in your affirmation in many ways more than I'm trusting in the identity that I have been given from Jesus Christ. And, and, and right, you, we, we all do this all the time. Right? There's the God of money, there's the God of affirmation, there's the God of success, there's the God of family, there's the God of our spouse, there's the God of adventure, there's the God of hobbies, there's the God of entertainment. Pick your God. Pick the God you want to you wanna put ab- above the creator of the universe. Even though if we step back, we realize in Jesus Christ we have been given everything, we have been promised everything, we lack nothing except the faith to believe it. That's enough. So what we do is we hedge our bets, we, we spread out our trust, we spread out our worship. And, and what we see in the Old Testament, kind of a theme that runs, I heard somebody pointing out yesterday actually, this theme we see in the Old Testament is that humans are what they worship. Another way I've heard it said is we, we become like what we behold. So, so the problem with these multiple gods is that like if, I, if I'm worshiping a rock, if I'm worshiping a sculpture of another god, if I'm worshiping my job, if I'm worshiping a political party, guess what? I'm going to start to look like those things. 
And you don't believe me? You see it all the time. Okay, if I, if I devote all, <laughs> I've done this with my job. If I devote all my energy and all my time worshiping my job, when you look at me, mostly what you're going to see is the image of my job rather than the image of the living God, rather than the image of Jesus Christ, which is what I'm called to do. If I spend most of my time, and this is nothing we see today, immersing myself on the internet and TV and political ideology, okay, rather than spending my time in scripture and listening to God, when you listen to me, I'm going to sound like a political pundit more than a follower of Jesus. Do, do we not see that all the time? We start to hear, and this is, this is really, I don't mean to, this is hard. It's hard when I see Christians that sound more like political pundits than they do followers of Jesus. Because we're worshiping it. You become like what you worship. What do you worship? What gets the priority of your time and your energy? Oh, man. All of a sudden, I'm starting to look like something that looks nothing like Jesus Christ. It's why we gather on Sunday morning. It's why we do all these practices of spending time with Jesus because we want to behold Jesus Christ. We want to spend time as a community and individuals reflecting on who Jesus is, reflecting on what Jesus has done, reflecting on what Jesus is doing now and what he will do one day. Reflecting to remind myself, my identity is not in my job. My identity is in Jesus Christ. All my needs will be met through Jesus if I can just believe it. That Jesus is asking me to put nothing in front of him. And he's not doing that to make my life difficult got to hear that. Jesus is doing that because he has my best interest in mind. Because Jesus wants you and me to live lives of flourishing. If we become like what we behold, man, we are so blessed. Because you know who we get to behold? Jesus Christ. Who is more beautiful than Jesus Christ? If you have studied Jesus Christ, if you have read the Gospels, if you have read the New Testament, Nothing in this world is more beautiful than Jesus Christ, the life he lived, what he did for us, what he promises. Behold that. Give that your worship.